Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. You know, we're in a, a, a time in this world where people say, you can do anything you want if you just try hard enough. Isn't that what we often hear? You just got to try hard enough, you can do it. But I have to tell you, that's just not true. There are some things you could try really hard to do, but you're just not going to be able to do them. I made a list of them I found here. Uh, for instance, you can try to lick your elbow, but you cannot do it. I don't think anybody can lick their elbow. Uh, you can't sneeze with your eyes open, incidentally. And also, I don't think anybody can officially wiggle only one ear. Isn't that true? You have to wiggle both. And according to what I learned on the internet, they say you cannot draw a six with your finger at the same time that you try to rotate your foot in a clockwise direction. Now, I haven't tested that out. I'm not going to do it now because I'd fall probably. So somebody after the service will have to test that out and see if they can draw a six while rotating their foot in a clockwise direction. You know, there's a lot of things that are impossible for us to do, no matter how hard we try. But what is impossible for us is not always impossible for God. And this morning, we're going to be studying one of those things that God can do that we can't do. So I'd like you to get your copy of God's Word. Turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 17. While you're turning, let me just take a moment to orientate you to our study. If you've been out of it for a little bit, we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And right now, we are in sort of the final uh, approach of Jesus to Jerusalem. When we get to the next chapter, Mark chapter 11, it'll be the triumphal entry, which will be the last week of Jesus' life. Jeremy, go ahead and put that map up there for us, if you could. Uh, a few weeks ago, we saw that Jesus was in this area called Perea, or, uh, just east of the Jordan River. And what we've seen is he is actually approaching Jerusalem there, and he's taking now what is called, it's in purple, if you can see it, it's called the Jericho Road. It's that little bit of road. That's what he is on right now. This is where the story takes place on that final approach to Jerusalem. You can picture it because actually if you look at this top up, topographically, Jesus is going to go down and to the bottom. Jericho is sort of in a valley, and then from Jericho it's a straight climb up. To Jerusalem, which is on top of a mountain. So that is what is going to take place and where it's taking place in this story. So stand out of reverence for the Word of God and follow along in your copy of the Word of God as I read for you verses 17 through 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, a good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, 
for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Is it easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Well then, who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. That ends the reading of God's Word. You can be seated. I'm going to break up uh, this passage under four headings. The first thing we're going to look at has, actually the first two things we're going to look at has to deal with money. We're going to look at how money can be a subtle and powerful idol. Then we're going to see how uh, Money is not actually a, a spiritual asset. It can be a spiritual liability. And then we'll zoom into the main focus of this passage. We'll learn that God is the only one who can do the impossible. And we'll finally look at Peter and the rich man and see whose shoes we'd like to be in. So let's begin at the top. Money can be a subtle and powerful idol. In verse 17, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So here we have a guy who runs up to Jesus and he kneels before Jesus. And we know because this, uh, is also, this story is also told in Matthew and it's told in Luke that this is a young man who runs up to Jesus. He's also a very wealthy man who runs up to Jesus. He is called a, a ruler in these texts that talk about him. And ruler probably means he's what you call a synagogue ruler. Uh, synagogue rulers were the highest lay people in a synagogue. So he's not a Pharisee. He's not a, a Sadducee. He's not one of the religious elite. He's a lay person in the synagogue. He is a wealthy person in the synagogue, and he has risen to the position of being the ruler over the synagogue. That's most likely who he is by being used, by being called a ruler. And this is extremely unusual because we learn he is a young man. A young man that has risen to the position of being a synagogue ruler almost never happens. That position was usually reserved for an old man. They were considered one of the elders, but not this guy. This guy is a little bit like Mark Zuckerberg. You know, the guy who is super successful at a young age when it comes to money and when it comes to leadership. But he's not just financially successful. 
And so people recognize him for that, but he is spiritually successful. The synagogue ruler is a position that uh, the people in the synagogue voted him into. The people elected him into, sort of like the chairman of an elder board would be in our kind of local congregation. And so they don't just admire his financial ability and his financial and business leadership, what they really admire is his spiritual leadership. They see him as extremely spiritually mature, especially for his age. So he's a financial success and a spiritual success. He's got a lot of good things going for him. Some other things he has going for him that are good is his attitude. I mean, look at this guy. He runs up to Jesus, it says. By, by the way, you wouldn't normally do that. Running in, that ancient, in the ancient world was not something that people of status did. Running was typically reserved for slaves. It's a little bit like uh, President Trump or Mike Pence. They don't run places. They walk because of their status. But this guy is willing to embarrass himself because he doesn't want to miss Jesus. He doesn't want Jesus to get away. He runs up to Jesus in spite of being a wealthy, rich synagogue ruler. Not only that, but then he kneels down before Jesus. A man of his status and his power, kneeling down before an itinerant rabbi? Man, that's humility. This guy has a lot of good things going for him. A lot of things that are spiritually right for him. But he has one big question that's rolling around for him. He's not confident. He's not confident that he has eternal life. So he says to Jesus, what is the one thing I need to do to get eternal life? Sort of wants to add to his list of accomplishments, doesn't he? I've already been successful financially. I've already been successful as a leader. I'm successful in my church. I'm the chairman of the board of my church. Now I want to add to my list of accomplishments that I actually saved myself. That's essentially what he wants to do. He wants to add to his list of accomplishments. And Jesus is going to pop his bubble. He's going to unmask sort of this um, inner selfish nature that he has. And he's going to begin doing that by talking about one of the words he used. It's the word good. You notice how he called Jesus a good teacher. Let me show you what I mean. Continue in your outlines or in your Bible, either one. Verse 18, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. So he doesn't know that Jesus is God. He just sees Jesus as a teacher, is a good teacher. A teacher that is better than other teachers. A teacher that he admires. A teacher that he's going to look up to. And as we're going to see in a few minutes, not only does their rich young ruler see Jesus as good compared to others, but he sees himself as pretty good compared to others. He's using good in a relative term. I'm better than other people. And Jesus looks to be like a better teacher than other teachers. But Jesus is going to challenge him here. Don't use good as a relative term. You need to think of good as an absolute term. 
Don't compare yourself to other people and say, look how good I am. Compare yourself to God and say, look how good He is. Because when we start to compare ourselves with, against God, we're realizing that we are not that good at all. As a synagogue ruler, he would no doubt know the Psalms. And the Psalms are filled with uh, all kinds of phrases talking about the goodness of God and how God is absolutely good, truly good, and pure good. And guess what? We're not. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter 3 sort of takes a medley of the Psalms and a couple of other Old Testament verses and he puts them, puts them together to try and describe that. I'm not going to read all of Paul's medley, but I'll read to you just a few verses of his medley from Romans chapter 3, which quotes the Psalms. It says, as it is written, there is none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. I did a little bit of research on this. In the Psalms, Psalm 143, Psalm 53, Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Psalm 36, all say that we are not good as soon as you compare yourself to God. So the Old Testament laws, we're going to find, they show us what good really looks like. They show us what God's standard of goodness is. And by the way, the Old Testament laws, they are not written to make us feel good about ourselves. The Old Testament laws are there to make us feel bad about ourselves. The Old Testament laws are not a ladder, that we, a ladder up which we climb to God. The Old Testament laws are written to be a mirror to show us how far short we fall from God. The Old Testament laws are not meant to be a point of pride to show, up, to show others how many we keep. The Old Testament laws are meant to be a point of humility to show us how many we break and that we're actually not that good at all. So Jesus says, okay, you're calling me good. Nobody is good but God alone. It's not a relative term. It's an absolute term. You want to know what God says goodness is? Let's look at his laws. How do you measure up to God's laws? And Jesus goes to the Ten Commandments and starts listing them. He says, well, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, some of you may remember from when we studied the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments actually break up into two pieces. Remember that? The first four are vertical in nature. They have to do with our relationship with God. The last six are horizontal in nature. They have to do with our relationship with one another. And Jesus goes to the second half of the Ten Commandments, the laws that are horizontal in nature, the ones that have to do with our relationship with one another. And he says, well, you want to talk about how good we are? Let's see how you measure up against those Ten Commandments. And he says, guess what, Jesus? I'm doing really well. 
I've never broken any of them since my youth. What does that tell us? He's a very deluded person. What it tells us is he is just looking at the surface of these commandments, not looking at the heart of these commandments. I think most of us would sit here and say, well, I haven't murdered anybody. <laughs> Probably many of us would say, I haven't committed adultery. But see, these commandments go much deeper than that. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says that we break these commandments not just with our hands, but we break these commandments in the attitudes of our hearts. Let me show you what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, but whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus says, guess what? We don't just murder people with our hands. We can murder people in our heart and break this commandment. Or you continue. Jesus says in verses 27 and 28 of the Beatitudes, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus says you can break this commandment not just by committing adultery in real life, but you can break this commandment by committing adultery in your thought life. So what we have is that he says compared to others, I'm a pretty good guy. And I've never even broken any of the Ten Commandments if as long as I'm looking on the outside of my life. He doesn't understand that these commandments actually also apply to the inside of our life and our heart as well. But Jesus then moves from the last six commandments to the first four commandments. Remember the first four commandments are about our relationship with God that says we shall have no other God before him. That's number one. We shall not have an idol that we worship in our life. That's number two. And Jesus is going to show him, by the way, <laughs> you don't think you've broken any of the Ten Commandments? You've broken the first two of the Ten Commandments. And here's how Jesus unmasks that. That he's not really that good after all. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus says, Go sell your stuff. It'll be converted to treasure in heaven. You can join me. You'll become the 13th disciple. It'll be great, but he wouldn't do it, would he? What was the real God he was worshiping in his life? His money. He really loved his money, his status, his success, and his power more than he loved his God. And Jesus unmasked that by giving him a big ask, and he was not willing to do it.
Now, let me ask a couple questions here that automatically have arisen from this passage for years. What about us? Does God want us to sell all of our stuff and follow him? I'm going to tell you at the answer. Probably not. And here's why. No place in the Bible does it command us to sell all of our stuff and go into voluntary poverty to follow Jesus. Jesus doesn't say to this man, the law says, sell all your stuff. It doesn't say that. Jesus was going after this particular man with this particular man's false idol that he had in his life, which was his money and his stuff. That was the rival God in this man's life. Later on, as we continue, you'll see Jesus can run it. We won't see it necessarily here, but we'll see it later that Jesus runs into Zacchaeus, who is also a rich man. Zacchaeus uh, sort of comes to Christ. Zacchaeus voluntarily sells half of his stuff and gives it to the poor, but Jesus doesn't tell him to do it. That was a choice that Zacchaeus made, not something that Jesus told him to do. Later, Jesus will run into Nicodemus, who was also a very wealthy man. There's not even a word between them about Jesus saying to sell his stuff. Because for Nicodemus, it doesn't seem that his stuff was his alternative God. Later, we'll also see that Joseph of Arimathea, but one of the other ones I noticed was in Luke. We find that there's many prominent women, it says, who supported Jesus and his disciples from their means. It doesn't say that Jesus told those women to sell all their stuff and follow him. He was very content when they chose to give some of their wealth to Jesus and his apostles to support them in the ministry. So, this man thought he was really good. He thought he was good because he only looked on the surface of the law, not the depth of the law. And he didn't realize that he had actually broken the very first commandment itself. He was worshiping another God, which was his wealth and his money, and Jesus unmasked that. The point I want to make here is that money, as I said, can be a very subtle but powerful idol in our lives. We can also be in the same position of this rich man. Don't realize that we actually love our cash and our position more than Jesus. But let me see if I can apply this a little bit more. How can we know if money has started to become an idol in our life? An idol that we actually start to love more than God, itself, God himself. I put down three questions you can ask yourself here. Do I find myself envying those who have more than me? If you're constantly envying those who have more than you, it may mean that stuff and money has started to become your alternative God. Now, that envy can arise because we see advertising, and that creates envy in us. That envy can arise when we look at our peers. When we say people that are our age, all of a sudden they bought a new car. Or they've bought a new boat. And we're like, well, wait a minute. Maybe I should be buying something like they have. 
the scriptures tell us that we should be focusing on contentment, knowing that God will provide everything we need to be able to serve Him where He has us right now. If we need something else to serve Him, He will provide that so we can serve Him. Focus on being content, not envious. Another question, am I a spender or a miser? People who are constantly feeling the need to spend money, sometimes that's an indication that their God is money. They can only live in the economic presence. Uh, the budgets, they hate them. Saving, they don't want to do them. That's because they worship stuff and purchasing. But on the other end, you could have somebody who's a complete miser, and they can also be worshiping money, and that should reveal that. When Scrooge off the Christmas story is like their favorite hero. You know, so that's something else that can reveal that worshiping money has become our God. And number three, am I a giver or a tither? One of the best ways to break the grip that money can have on our heart is to give some of it away. Give it in worship to God in your church or give it to some other people in need because it's not about me and, and, and it's not my money, it's actually God's money. I'm trying to get God's money where it needs to go. So, we see that money can be a very subtle and powerful idol. And the rich young ruler thought he was good, but actually he wasn't as good as he thought because he was worshiping another god, the god of money. Now we continue. Money, we learn next, is more of a spiritual liability than an asset. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. These words are shocking to Jesus' audience. They may not be shocking to us, but they were shocking to Jesus' audience. And the reason that they're not shocking to us is because we have the full breadth of the New Testament with us. We have Paul's writings about money. We've seen what Jesus has said about money. So when we read this, we typically backwardsly interpret it. And I'll explain that more in a few minutes. Let me just give you a few reasons why wealth can be a spiritual liability. A couple things here. And by the way, as I say these things, I am not saying that these are true of every person who has wealth. I'm saying these are particularly difficult challenges for people who have wealth wealth. So don't misinterpret this. Number one, it is easy for those who are rich to live with a sense of false security about the future. People who have a lot of economic resources do oftentimes do not face much desperation. They don't have to pray for things when all they need to do is pay for things. It's very easy for those who have great economic resources to become overconfident about their ability to handle the future because money can seem to solve all the problems they have for the future. When they don't need resources beyond themselves, they oftentimes don't pray for resources beyond themselves. And it's easy for those who have a lot of resources to live as if this life is all that matters. Now, I'm not saying every person who is well-off financially is this way, but this is a particular challenge of those who have a lot of resources. Paul writes about this in 1 Timothy 6, 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, that's proud, nor to set their hopes 
for the future, that is, on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything. Another challenge that the riches, those with riches face is it's easy to be bound to this world if you have a lot of resources. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21 says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you have a lot of treasure here, it's hard not to have your heart always here. Lots of stuff means lots of stuff to care for, lots of taxes to pay, lots of things to work on, lots of things to fix, lots of things to put your energy into. It's not wrong to have lots of stuff. Don't take that. It just means that it's a particular temptation to have to put all your energy and thought life into that stuff and not onto the next world. Reminds me of Luke chapter 12. Remember the rich man who had lots of stuff, who kept building bigger and bigger and bigger barns as if this life is all that matters, and yet on that very night, he died and was taken home. And his riches gave him a false sense of security for the future. One other challenge. It's easy for the rich to become selfish. Let's be honest about this. Not all rich are this way, but it's a challenge. When you don't have to work to survive, it's easy to work for just self-fulfillment. It's easy to work for just vacations and pleasure and ease. And that sort of develops a sense of self-fulfillment and selfishness in people's hearts. Not that every rich person is this way, it's just a particular challenge. Now, let me flip this around and take this in a direction you never saw coming. While at first we talked about how those who are wealthy face particular spiritual challenges and wealth can be a real liability. In the first century, when this was written, wealth was seen, if you were a godly person or a church or a synagogue-going person, wealth was seen as a spiritual asset, not a spiritual liability. They sort of had an early version of the prosperity gospel going on at that time. They thought if you were really pleasing to God, that meant you'd be wealthy from God. And if you did things right with God, you'd receive a lot from God. So when people looked at this rich young man who was a ruler in his synagogue and who was also very wealthy, they would see that man as the most pleasing man to God out there because God had confirmed that by giving him lots of resources. So that's like I put here. Uh, why did people in Jesus' day see wealth as a spiritual asset? They believed God always showed his spiritual favor by material blessings. That was a common belief in that day. And they would use verses such as Psalm 128, 1 through 2. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it will be well with you. Remember the Old Testament book of Job and Job's friends? Remember when life fell apart for Job? What were his friends telling him to do? There must be some sin in your life. Confess that sin to God and all your wealth will return to your life, Job. And we know that wasn't the issue at all. But that's the theology in their heart, in their mind. 
That's the theology that is going on in this time. And that didn't just apply, apply to um, physical resources. They thought that also applied to health. In other words, if you were sick, they thought it's probably because you sinned against God. And how do you get well? Confess your sin to God. You can see that here in John chapter 9, verse 2. And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this man, his, this man or his parents that he was born blind? See that? How they have that sort of equation going back and forth here? Let me just jump down to, to this. What we have right now is they believe that godly people are blessed with great material blessings. And they see the rich young ruler, who's the ruler of his synagogue, who's rich because he's obviously very pleasing to God. And Jesus has just said how difficult it is for a rich man to get into heaven. And that completely inverts their whole understanding of wealth on its head. Difficult? I thought people like the rich young ruler were leading the way into heaven. Everyone else went after people like him. This is why, as you continue, it says this. And the disciples were amazed at his words. You see that total inversion of their understanding of wealth right here? But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they're thinking, if it's impossible, or it's difficult for a person like that rich young ruler to make it into the kingdom of God, the rest of us don't even have a chance. And Jesus says, let me tell you how difficult it is for a very godly man who says he's never even broken the Ten Commandments, who's extremely wealthy and blessed by God to enter the kingdom of God. It's as difficult as a camel going through the eye of a needle. Let me explain that to you. That little phrase was something that was used in the ancient world to describe something that was completely impossible to do. The camel was the largest animal they had in the land of Israel, the eye of a needle was the smallest opening they had in the eye of a needle in, the, in Israel. You can't get one through the other. It's just impossible to do. Incidentally, this saying is widely attested to. They even had a similar saying to this in the land of Babylon, except they, in Babylon they redid it a little bit. They said it's, an, it's as hard as getting an elephant through the eye of a needle. You know why they used that one? Because they had elephants in Babylon, and they're bigger than camels. That's all it was. It's a sign of something that is impossible to do. The idea of how can a rich man save himself? Remember, this is the guy who said, give me the one thing I need to do to inherit eternal life. And what does Jesus say? There is nothing you can do. doesn't matter how godly you are. You've never broken the Ten Commandments, at least in your own mind doesn't matter how blessed by God you are. You're wealthy. You're the ruler of the synagogue. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. It is completely impossible. That's what Jesus says. 
By the way, before we uh, get too far off of this, some of you have probably inadvertently been brought up under some bad teaching about this text. Some of you may have heard about something called the Needles Gate in the, in the city of Jerusalem. And they said to you, well, what it means is that the Needles Gate was a small opening in the city walls of Jerusalem and that if a camel was going to get into the city at night, if he unburdened himself with all of his packages, the camel could shimmy through that hole on his knees and make it in. And um, the idea is that a rich man, if he just unburdens himself from his wealth, he could shimmy into the kingdom. Sorry, guys. Not true. That actually interpretation comes in the 11th century by a Byzantine commentator, and it was passed down to sort of give the idea that there's something you can do to save yourself. And the whole point of this passage is there is nothing you can do to save yourself. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how blessed by God you are. It is impossible to save yourself, which is why it gets really interesting from here on out when they say this, and they were exceedingly astonished. You know why? There it is. If he can't be saved, who can be saved? And he said to them, then who can be saved? There's no hope in prayer for us. And this is where the good news of the gospel comes in, right here. God can do the impossible. Jesus said, God... Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Saving yourself, it's like trying to put a camel through the eye of a needle. doesn't matter how good you are. But here's the good news. God could do the impossible. God is the one who's going to Jerusalem to die in our place, for our sins, to save us. And how do we take advantage of what God has done for us? What is the one thing we need to do? Simply trust and receive it with the faith of a little child. Remember the story of the children right before this? Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. What does a child do? A child looks at their mom and their dad and says, I can't do anything. Pick me up. I need you to save me because I can't save myself. A child has complete faith and trust in their parents. And that's the way we're saved. Complete faith and trust in Jesus, our God, to save us. Paul says the exact same thing. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. There's nothing you can do. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Now it ends this way. With Peter. Would you rather be in the shoes of Peter or the rich young ruler? And Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, you wanted this guy to leave all of his stuff? Well, I left all of my stuff. I left my business. I left my family. I left my home. What's in it for me? And Jesus says to him, 
Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. The rich young ruler kept his stuff but he missed Jesus and the blessing of the great larger family of the church and he missed eternal life. Peter let his stuff go. He ended up with the blessing of the church and the blessing of being with Jesus plus the blessing of eternal life. Whose shoes would you rather be in today? The shoes of a rich person like Mark Zuckerberg who doesn't have the church and doesn't have eternal life or in the shoes that you're wearing who does have the church who does have Jesus and who does have eternal life which one's really winning in the end let's pray dear Jesus we come before you and we want to confess that many times we are like the rich young ruler. We are just captivated by stuff and living for material things. But we have something so much better than money. We have you. We have eternal life with you. And you've given us one another in the church. Oh, we are so blessed. And we know that we receive it not by anything we can do. It's impossible for us to save ourselves. It's like trying to stuff a camel through a needle. It's just not happening. But what we can't do, you did do by going to the cross and dying for our sin. And we receive it all by the simple faith and trust in you like a child. Oh God, you are so good to us. And as we prepare to close, we worship you for your amazing grace and your amazing goodness through your Son. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.